Hello and welcome to the Doxology Podcast. I am Jens Nelson. And I am Lucas Stock. And this is a podcast dedicated to journeying together on the road that is the Christian faith. Thank you for joining us as we discuss and investigate theology and the Christian life as we strive for unity amongst our diversity as members of Christ's church. So we're back again. It's, it's, it's Tuesday. Uh, we're, we're here joined with uh, Dr. Gavin Ortland, who is the senior pastor at First Baptist Church Ojai in Ojai, California. Uh, you can find him on YouTube. His channel is Truth Unites. Uh, he's also the author of several uh, books, including Theological Retrieval for Evangelicals, Finding the Right Hills to Die on, uh, and Retrieving Augustine's Doctrine of Creation, all of which I have read and are great books, so you should definitely check them out. Welcome back, uh, Dr. Gavin Ortland. Thanks for, for being with us again. Hey, thanks for having me back. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, last Friday, we, we, we had an episode where we looked specifically at Anselm's life. We talked about his, his early days, some of his works, and um, why he's important. And, and today, we're, we're, we're back to talk more about Anselm. Uh, but specifically, we're talking about a book that uh, Gavin has written called Anselm's Pursuit of Joy. And this is a, a commentary on the Proslogian. So uh, this is a book that we're, we're thrilled that the, um, I don't know the full title, Catholic University Press, I of forget. Of America Press. Right, of America Press. We're, we're thrilled that they were able to um, hook us up with some copies to review and to, to talk about. And we're thrilled that, that Gavin is here to, to talk about it as well. So um, without any further ado, why don't, we, why don't we get in here? Um, so I know we're very interested as, as you know, modern day Protestants, uh, what sparked your interest, Gavin, in studying Anselm specifically? Was there some, some root cause where you struck by something he had written? We're, we're just kind of curious how you got to, to know Anselm. Yeah, yeah, I remember it pretty vividly. I think I was a senior in high school, something like that. And my oldest brother, Eric, had given me a copy of uh, something. I think it was actually an article by Alvin Plantinga about what people call the ontological argument, which is an argument for God's existence. And I, I wasn't a very studious person. So people are thinking as a senior in high school, I was reading, this is like the first thing like this I'd ever really ventured into. But um, it did kind of spark an interest in me in kind of philosophy of religion and arguments for God's existence. And this argument in particular, because it was such a, if, if people are not familiar with it, it's, it's basically an argument that God exists from the very idea of God in the human mind. And I just remember my feeling about that going into it was surely that won't work. Uh, <laughs> Surely you can't work from an idea of something to its actual existence outside of your mind. And yet I could not tell what was wrong with the argument. And uh, step by step, it seems to work. And to this day, I still can't tell what's wrong with the argument. I think it's actually crazy enough, a sound argument. <laughs> so um, that article led me to Anselm because Anselm is uh, one of the reasons he's famous is for um, articulating this argument. And, um, but then I had another kind of experience of, as I'm reading Anselm, it felt very different from Alvin Plantinga or other contemporary philosophers. I noticed it's only one very small portion of this much larger book. I noticed that it's all written as a prayer patterned after Augustine's confessions. And I noticed it has this intense spiritual yearning to it. It's very emotional. 
Um, you know, so it's chapters two through four of the Prostologian would be a couple of different arguments that together uh, would, would be under the label ontological argument. But chapter one is the longest chapter, very energetic, and, and just this passionate plea for what we call the beatific vision, which means the soul's sight of God in heaven. And so he's just, you know, going on and on, begging God to allow him for this, because this is the very reason he exists. This is why he's alive to see God in this way. And I thought, this is so interesting that that's the context in which this very difficult and philosophical argument for God's existence would come up. And that just kind of fascinated me. And the more I spent time in Anselm reading it, the more I began to notice there's so much about this that just feels different and kind of alien to the way that I've always functioned as an evangelical Christian. And so I sometimes I've used the metaphor of uh, just this quote from the movie, Mr. Holland's Opus, which is an old older movie now, but uh, Richard Dreyfuss's character is a, a music teacher and he's describing how he came to love music. And he says, I got a John Coltrane um, tape would have been back in that day. And he, he was listening to it in his car. And he said, at first, I couldn't stand it. I just could not understand what is going on. I hated it. So I kept listening and I kept listening. And eventually I just couldn't stop listening to it. And then he said, then I knew what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And something about something when, when it's so different, sometimes it pulls you in. And I just found Anselm became for me a, a window into a whole larger world of a, a pre-modern time, the medieval time, very different world. And uh, I've just never really stopped that journey of fascination because I just feel there's so much to learn from these other times when people did tend to approach things very differently. Not to say we should be uncritical, but, but, um, uh, but there is so much to learn. So that's kind of an initial entry point for me. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and I, I think, I, I know I can relate to that sort of experience. And I feel like that's something that we all can, um, whether it's something like music or a, a figure from history or an idea or whatever. Um, but that um, part of that, that sort of differentness kind of drawing you in, like you talked about, um, one of the one of the first things I noticed when I was reading through um, your book is your discussion, which is more or less the first full chapter of the book on his Anselm's method in um, in in some of his other works in general, as well as the Proslogion specifically. Um, and the phrase that really jumped out to me was "sola ratione." I don't know Latin, so maybe I'm mispronouncing that. But um, then the reason it jumped out to me. You know, reason alone, or, or or perhaps there's a better translation is is being raised Protestant. You know, being raised as as a, a Reformation Christian, I'm I'm primed when I hear the word sola to think of mm-hmm. other solas, like especially fide or scriptura or these other words that that are the the things that we're supposed to um, believe in alone, right? Um, and and I, I wouldn't normally think of reason alone as a necessarily good way to go about um, trying to, to, to do something, especially do something theological, like prove that God exists or write about the beatific vision or whatever, whatever other sort of theological task we can think of. So this is maybe a, a bit of a vague question. So let me know if you need it sort of uh, specified a little more. But 
sort of like, could you give us an overview on what does sola ratione mean, um, particularly as a method that Anselm is using in his theological um, journey? Okay, sure. Yeah, so sola ratione means by reason alone. And this is one of the big questions with Anselm that have uh, led many people to characterize him as kind of confused or inconsistent or, um, you know, just um, kind of internally contradictory in how he's functioning. Because in one of his key early works uh, called the Monologion, at the very first chapter, he says, I'm going to argue by reason alone, sola ratione. Um, and yet he's also famous for, and you have this in the first chapter of his next work, which is a companion work, the Proslogion, arguing by faith-seeking understanding. Uh, and there's a, you know, fides quirens intellectum is the Latin phrase for that that's very famous. And he's often known for that method of faith-seeking understanding, which I think there's, um, that is such a profound way of thinking about the theological task, I think. And there's actually so much that could be drawn out of that. And it's been very relevant for people in the in the modern era. People like Karl Barth have drawn a lot from Anselm's faith-seeking understanding method. So there's a lot we could say about that and, and why that is different from various alternatives. But one of the questions is, well, how do those two things relate? You know, is it reason or is it faith? Um, because in a modern context, like, uh, you know, if you pick up a, a modern philosophy of religion textbook and you're going through, probably one of the chapters will be on faith versus reason. You know, do we believe because of faith or because of reason or some combination and how do those relate to each other? And so this is the whole realm of um, the big word would be epistemology, meaning how we know about God and other truths. And so the, the argument that I make is that Anselm isn't contradicting each other. And actually these two statements are totally harmonious and that in his context, when he said by reason alone, um, and this is again, gets to the difference between his context and ours, he really didn't mean by reason alone, that is not by faith, but it, was, it wasn't a statement about epistemology. It was a statement about method. So he's saying by reason alone, that is not by authority. And this is the whole context of monologian. The other monks are coming to him saying, hey, will you explain why this makes sense? And not just give me the verse in scripture or the chapter in Augustine that is the basis for it. And because that was honestly how a lot of the early medieval theological argumentation happened. You know, there's a big famous dispute about the nature of Christ's presence in the Eucharist in the ninth century. And the two main figures, the way they argued is just who can get more quotes from Augustine? <laughs> I mean, it's not, not quite that simple, but it, it really is like... That was generally how theological argumentation and theological education was done. You get a florilegia, which is a, a selection of quotes from the fathers and from scripture. And uh, those are authorities and you go with the authority. And so Anselm's trying to argue, he's trying to explain the reason why something makes sense. What's the internal consistency to its logic? And so that's how, what he means by sola ratione. But he doesn't mean that um, you're not operating by faith still. So if you just define faith as a posture of trusting assent in the heart of the person doing the theology, sola ratione is not intended to exclude that. Um, that's in no way what, what the word sola is excluding. Um, so you, usually the word sola is excluding something else. We say by faith alone, and that means not 
by faith and works, right? So the thing being excluded by this sola isn't faith. It's um, an appeal to authority. And so that, when I saw that, and that's what the first chapter of the book is arguing, that just put a lot of pieces of the puzzle together and it helped me. It was one of those points where you say, ah, oh, I have to understand Anselm in his context in light of his concerns. Um, I can't just um, read him through the lens of sort of modern categories. So that helped. I just think it's a small point that helps us understand Anselm better. Yeah, it, it really stuck out to me. And, and I remember reading just in the first chapter, like, I, you know, not knowing quite what to expect diving into this book and, and, you know, reading through that first chapter on his method, I was like, this is going to be such an exciting read. Cause I, uh, in this past spring semester, I had to read the proslogion in, in one of my courses and it just went straight over my head. Like, as I was reading it, I was just like, I don't, I don't get what's going on. Like, oh, there's the you know, his famous argument, you know, okay, but like, what's all this, you know, like, it just, I, I, I couldn't get a feel for it. And then like, after, after reading this and seeing, like you're saying these pieces, and as we'll get into the, the overall structure um, that, that Anselm was putting into the book to, to get to his goal, um, it, it makes me, I'm, I'm going to go back and, and reread it and with, with hopefully fresh eyes, but um, I thought that was such a, such a key point to, to especially to start out with is to understand the context, not only from a, from a sort of meta, maybe historical, like, oh, he was, you know, in, in this century and this part of the world and wrote in this language, but like really the context of, of these quotes and these arguments and these paragraphs that we, that we can read and we can argue about and we can try to interpret what's going on um, when Anselm was actually putting pen to paper that, that produces, um, the book that we have, uh, you know, today. And, and I felt that was a really, um, a really helpful insight. So I wanted to kind of pick your brain a little more about it. So, um, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. If I could just follow up to just kind of an additional thought there, just what's helped me with engaging someone like Anselm, who really is in a different context, being a monk in the, the late 10 hundreds, <laughs> it is a different world, you know? And so I often think of cultural travel, like it, when I studied abroad in England or even going to someplace outside the West, how would you function if you were just, you know, plopped down in some completely different culture? Well, you, you need to listen really carefully and you need to have a lot of humility to try to understand um, what are the cultural differences and reading someone from a different time period is often quite like that. And so just an encouragement for people diving into Anselm is just really keep your ears wide open <laughs> and, and just listen carefully for, for the ways that not only his answers to questions are different, but the questions themselves are different. The categories are different. And again, that's part of the whole fun. Right. That's, that's great. Yeah. So Another question that came to mind as, as, as I was reading uh, your book, um, you say that in Proslogion 1, Anselm is said to be a, quote, little man or, quote, insignificant mortal because of the grievous loss uh, by which all other children of Eve have lost that for which they were created, which is the sight and knowledge of God. Um, so being, you know, the first, you know, chapter, if we can call it a chapter of, of his book, how does that inform the rest of his work? Is that it seemed like that was a pretty big motivating factor. Yeah. Okay. So this is what I was experiencing as I'm writing my dissertation. And, uh, you know, I'm a big believer in just a close reading of the text. 
that it's, sometimes it's easy to make things overly complicated and that um, well, we want to go through every possible scholarly exercise we'll need to do. There's no substitute for just carefully reading classic texts. And so what I, I kind of wanted to write a, a dissertation like this where you're just working on a classic text and so just getting really close. So I'm working through the Latin and, and um, trying to just be very careful to ask, what is he saying and what does it mean? So at the very beginning of the whole book, uh, chapter one, before you get to any of the arguments, is just this long prayer. The whole book's a prayer, but this one has kind of an elevated tone. It's sort of an in invocation at the beginning, and he's asking God to help him. And he starts off by addressing himself. And there's three moments in the Prosogian where he where he does that. This halfway through and at the climactic moment where he'll he, he's sort of speaking to his own soul. And here he calls himself he says, come now, homunculo, which is little man or insignificant mortal. It's kind of hard to translate, but it's kind of a pejorative term. And so the question is, what, you know, why does he call himself that at the beginning here? And I think not to get too in the weeds here, but the basic idea is he is understanding himself as sinful and as in need of God's help to approach God. And so the entire chapter one is returning to how he talks about himself as kind of recapitulating the sin of Adam in the garden. And he, his soul has lost the beatific vision, which is the, the sight of God in heaven, the soul's spiritual apprehension of God, which is thought to be the ultimate human experience. And so he's lost that. And the reason he's lost that is because of sin. Um, the, the whole of Prosogian one is marked by this profound tension it's almost it almost reads like kind of existentialist literature or something like that he's he's you know he's basically saying i was born for this but i don't have it so the very reason i'm alive has been thwarted because i was born to see god but i can't do that because of sin and so he's just begging god over and over through all these literary devices stacking up these images and, and scriptural quotations begging God to help him see God. And that's where you get the famous method of faith-seeking understanding. And it's just so fascinating that and everything else and this very dense philosophical argumentation follows out of that prayer. So um, I think that's the significance of it. I think that it kind of adds a personal and moral dimension to everything else that comes in the Prosogion. And it kind of helps frame um, one, one of the things, I mean, that's just sort of stepping back and, and looking at the obvious is just the way Anselm interweaves theology with spirituality. You know, that the fact that he's praying for God's help and lamenting his sin in the work, not just like before he started writing it, <laughs> but like in the, in that part of, in fact, that's the lengthiest chapter of the whole book. Um, that is pretty interesting. And uh, again, it's just one of those things that's, that's very different from how we often approach theology today. Yeah, definitely. Um, so moving on from, from, from that first lengthy chapter, chapters two through four kind of contain what has been come, be, be, what has come to be called his ontological argument for God, his famous proof of God's existence that a lot of um, Bible college students like me learn in their theology courses. But um, one of the, I, I think, biggest uh, points or, or at least recurring themes in your commentary on the Proslogion is, is it seeking to correct the over, the, the, the overemphasis on these chapters and this argument in such a way that the rest of the book has been either ignored or um, sort of 
pushed down to second place for in favor of just focusing on these chapters in an isolated way where we're, we're, we're going to write about or, or think about or learn about Anselm and the Proslogion, which really means we're going to look at these three chapters out of this 26 chapter book. Um, why do you think that happened? Which is, you know, the book's been around for nearly a thousand years. I can't imagine how many countless words have been written about it. So <laughs> we won't be able to hit everything, but I'm curious if, if anything stands out to you in any sort of patterns or, or, or themes that, that, um, could maybe help us explain why this section of this larger book has become so isolated so frequently. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. This is the great driving burden, of course, of my commentary that um, basically what happens is Anselm writes this book. He writes it as a 26 chapter book with, we've talked about chapter one. And then as you mentioned, chapters two through four have this argument for God's existence. And then the very first sentence of chapter five is, what then are you, you who are um, that, that then which a greater cannot be thought, which is the phrase that he uses to prove God's existence as well. So he's going from that God exists to how God exists and who God is. And it's the same argument. So the, he talks about his phrases, one argument to prove that God is and whatever else we believe about God. So Anselm at the beginning is very clear. He thinks his argument is doing more than just a, a proof that God's out there. He's trying, he actually sees it as comprehensive for theology. He thinks his argument shows us everything about God, this principle that he's that in which nothing greater can be thought. So what happens is another monk named Guanillo writes a rebuttal of his proof for God's existence, very famous rebuttal. And uh, so he, so he's responding to chapters two through four. And then Anselm writes a rejoinder to that rebuttal. And this becomes really famous, uh, this famous dispute between Anselm and Guanillo. And um, very frequently, and I mentioned Florilegia earlier, which is um, summaries of quotations or texts. And then later they become glosses, which is the same thing with a running commentary. And so in the medieval world, you get all these manuscripts that extract either just chapters two through four or chapters two through four, plus Guanillo's response, plus Anselm's rejoinder into the Florilegia or into the gloss. And they just, they just don't include the rest of the book. So that's a huge factor because tons of people just don't even know about the rest of the book. Um, it's, it's almost, I don't know of too many other texts where something like that has happened, where one part, portion of it has really gotten this kind of hyper-focus. And then even, uh, even when you have the entire book listed in the manuscript what you'll have is the entire book in most of the manuscripts we find the entire book then guanillo's response then a repetition of proslogion two through four and then anselm's rejoinder so you get two versions so all of that makes it not surprising that interpreters of the book have tended to have a laser focus on that portion and then of course you get um, Rene Descartes in the modern era coming up with his own ontological argument and then all kinds of people following him and all kinds of rebuttals of that. And then you have the revival of philosophy of religion, these arguments in the 20th century, especially in the 1960s. And the net effect is everybody loves to talk about um, what, they, what they will call Anselm's argument or the proslogian argument, that is the proof of God's existence. But what I'm arguing is that's not the argument. That's just one little portion of the argument. 
And while it's really important, I don't want to downplay those chapters. It's an amazing intellectual achievement, and it's a brilliant argument, but it really shouldn't be removed from its context. It really is best understood in the entire context of the whole work and where Anselm keeps going in chapter five following. So that's my brief, I should say elevator speech, but that's a long elevator ride. If that's, elevator <laughs> that's my brief, maybe taxi cab speech or something about kind of what I'm trying to do with the Prosogian and trying to urge a holistic reading of it. Yeah. I think, Jensen, I'll ask this next question, and then you can yeah. ask the, the other two, because I think they, they kind of go hand in hand. So part of that, like you're saying, this 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 one argument that is doing more than just what chapters two through four is doing, but is doing that plus actually the whole rest of what he, you know, he doesn't stop at chapter four. He goes on for most of the book to do to do other things. And, and I think what stuck out to me was... Um, where that culminates in terms of how he, um, not how he ends the book, but how he um, ends up talking about who that God is than which uh, none other can be thought, which um, if, if, if I have this right in Latin, he, he describes God as, as unum et sumum bonum for, for humanity, for, for the, for people, um, the, the, the one and, and, ultimate good, maybe something like that. Um, could you speak a little bit on that? And then also like how that, that description of God, that identity, um, identifying God as that, that, you know, um, some, some of all that is good for us. What, what does that have to offer us as Christians in the 21st century compared to, um, you know, Anselm 10 centuries ago? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so, so Anselm keeps going in chapter five and he starts building the pieces of all the various attributes of God. First, what he's trying to do in the next eight chapters or so is harmonize God's different attributes. And then about halfway through, he pauses the, and he gets to his second chapter 14, exactly halfway through after the, so you can think of the book in two thirteen chapter halves. Start of chapter 14, he pauses. He again talks to his own soul and says, Oh, my soul, have you found what you're looking for? And the basic answer is no. Um, and this is speaking to the question here because simply proving that God exists or even just proving certain attributes of his doesn't actually answer the purpose he's articulated in chapter one, namely the beatific vision. He wants to see God. So he keeps building and he's kind of progressing, kind of transcending upwards towards a sense of who God is. And as he gets into the later chapters, especially dealing with things like God's simplicity and God's eternity, he ultimately identifies God as the highest good. And that is um, the source of all good, um, the supreme happiness, the thing that every creature needs. Um, and he identifies that as the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in chapter 23 of the book. And then what I'm arguing is chapters 24 and 25 there at the very end of this sort of climactic um, moment in the book where he's offering this conjecture of how happy it will be to have God. So the basic idea is the book's about human happiness. The book's not just about God's existence. It's not just about God's existence and nature. It's about God's existence and nature as the fulfillment of all human longing, of the deepest yearnings of the human heart. So Anselm has a huge interest in happiness. And 
so that's why God is called the highest good, the one and highest good. And just to speak to, I mean, I could, believe me, I could go on. <laughs> I'll try to keep it. Uh, but just to speak to the question about, you know, how does this interface with kind of modern Western society? I, it really does. I just feel that there's such a sense of nihilism and despair in so much of modern Western society, sometimes just implicit and under the current and just, you know, not articulated, but just the sense you can even see it in the arts, in TV shows, in music, just this sense of, of despair. And people have commented on the kind of existential feel of Anselm's text of the Prosogian. One of the friend, one of the things I did is I read a lot of the French and German scholarship because most of it hasn't been translated. One of the French uh, scholars on the Prosogian calls it, says that his book is tapping into the secret silent desire of humanity. And I love that phrase. I always think about that. That's that's what the Prosogian is getting you into. It's 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 going into the deepest places in the human heart. The things that you can't even articulate, but you feel them when you're listening to music, for example, or when you're feeling a nostalgic memory, or when you're longing for heaven, those deepest places of existential yearning within. And he's saying, um, God is the answer to that. So I think that, um, you know, whatever else we might think about Anselm, whatever, wherever we might disagree with him on certain things, boy, does he have a vision of the grandeur and glory of God that can function as a helpful corrective to a lot of the barrenness of modern society. And that's just been my own personal benefit from him. I just, um, he helpfully destabilizes my thinking when I'm thinking in modern ways and pulls me back to the absolute centrality and uniqueness and wonder of God. Hmm. Related to that, I'm curious, you know, we're, we don't have the, the, the fortune of being able to, to be monks, to, to be able to dwell on these things almost for a living. Um, what does it look like, I guess, for, for 21st century Christians to really dwell on that? Like, I feel like part of it's like a product of where we live. Part of it, I think, is, you know, self-inflicted too. But we have so many distractions. You know, we have our, our, our work, which is often, you know, sitting at a desk or driving or something. Or And then, you know, we come home and we have... Um, responsibilities, sometimes other distractions like TV, uh, video games, whatever it might be. So how, how, what are just like really simple and practical ways that we can try to recover even that, that same mindset that Anselm has here? Mm -hmm. Well, let me mention one way that won't put too much guilt upon people, hopefully. Mm, right, right. <laughs> sometimes once we start thinking, oh, I need to cultivate more of a longing for God, we can sort of feel guilty, like, Am I doing enough? Am I doing it the right way? And, and it's, uh, don't want to put any more burdens on someone. I do think there's a place for being, you know, rigorous discipline, meditation, you know, there, I want to leave space for all of that. But one simple thing that um, we can do that won't be too much of a burden is realizing that every, this is really simple, but it, it does have implications, uh, that God is the source of everything that is good. And therefore, every good thing we experience Every happy and pleasurable thing we experience is from God ultimately. And therefore, in the enjoyment of life, we can uh, give thanks to God for it. And we can see God, we can see it as an arrow pointing to God. And then this is, of course, where Anselm ends up in Prosogion 24 and 25, where he's basically saying, if these things are good, how much better is the one who made them? And so he, he lists all these different physical pleasures of the body as well. 
Um, so he lists things like drunkenness, which is kind of interesting. Uh, he lists things like physical speed, <laughs> you know, <laughs> being able to run really fast, which is kind of like, again, it's just kind of delightful. You know, the honesty. That's the other thing about these classic texts, the mm. honesty. They're not pretentious like modern academic theology. So, um, and he's saying that is a little foretaste of heaven. Mm. So basically the, the idea here is use every earthly pleasure as anticipatory, as, as just a little whisper of what is yet to come in heaven. Uh, never think that, oh, once something is passed, it's truly passed if it's a good thing. No, it's just a foretaste. It's just an arrow pointing you to the ocean, the mm. source of all good. And I have found that to be really a fruitful exercise in my life to, it's just so joyful and it cultivates such gratitude and such wonder and such joy to realize that, um, and it's not even that hard to do. We just have to be mindful of it. It's not right. like a great discipline or that's painful. Or we just have to remember everything good is pointing ahead to who God is and what we one day more fully enjoy. Hmm. That's good. And, and I think related to that, uh, a, a big portion of your book too is dedicated to talking about heaven, talking about human happiness. And so for Anselm, what is the relation there? Like, so this is sort of like in his concluding thoughts as he, as he's, uh, you know, made his ascent, so to speak, like what, what is the culmination of this work? What, what is produced? What is his, um, I guess, yeah. What, 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 what can you speak to there? Yeah. Well, one, so, so the big picture I think to this would be that heaven is of course the fulfillment of human happiness and for Anselm, there is this pretty fierce contrast between our life here and heaven. You, you might, someone might feel he puts it a little too strong, the contrast, you know. Um, he really wants to say that everything here is waiting, you know. And, and so we enjoy things here, but there's always this sense of we're not home yet, you know. Um, so one of the ways he teases that out in chapters 24 and 25, which if people listening to this do nothing else, just go read those chapters. They're really uh, enthralling as a vision of what, how awesome heaven will be. And one of the ways he teases that out is by focusing upon love as a dynamic of heaven, which this is another one of the things that really drew me to Anselm. I never thought about before. I don't know why. Once you think about it, it's kind of obvious, but I never thought about it before. I always thought of heaven in more individualistic ways, like, well, I'll be with God. But what Anselm wants to say is, one of the things that makes heaven so wonderful is love. So uh, in heaven, you will love all the other saints and angels who are there. And so you will love your neighbor and, and you'll be perfect. So you'll do the golden rule perfectly. So you will love your neighbor as yourself. So you will be just as happy at their happiness as at your happiness. So in other words, you're there in heaven, somebody's right next to you. Now you're two, two times as happy. You're doubly happy because you love them just as much as you love yourself. So their happiness doubles your happiness. Okay, now extend that to a third person, right? Now extend that to that angel over there, you know, just on and on and on. And then it bounces back and forth because now they're, it's a, it's a multiplying joy because they're happy at your happiness being increased. <laughs> so it's this never ending. So I call it an infinite multiplication of joy. And uh, that, that's one of the most wonderful things about heaven is this communal aspect that sort of amplifies and crescendos the, the joy. And then, of course, it's all located in God himself. The ultimate joy is that God is happy. And so that makes us infinitely happy. And so he, he really is God-centered in that. 
But boy, that's pretty cool. I mean, what an awesome thing to think about and how impoverished our view of heaven is if we never think about that. Because of course, what love will be, it's not like we're going to stop loving our neighbor in heaven, right? So of course, that will influence the experience of heaven. So that's one of those examples of where for Anselm, heaven really is the uh, ultimate destination of just unspeakable, infinite, overflowing happiness. And, uh, I, you know, I remember deciding to write on this thinking, it'll be pretty cool to write, to really do a deep dive theologically on something that is so happy to think about. Mm -hmm. And it really does influence you. I mean, it really is wonderful to meditate upon that. It's beautiful. That is. That's really good. And 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 this this final question here, I think, is the one I'm, I've been most excited about. We sort of hinted at it in the the Friday episode, um, but in your book on page two fourteen specifically, you write that Anselm has exhibited the most intense yearnings for spiritual union with others, and his high doctrine of friendship has consistently been an essential ingredient in his view of heaven. And then there's a little bit of space. And then you say, paradoxically, solitude and retreat into one's own mind is for Anselm, the very means by which to approach the richest experience of community and friendship. Um, so can you elaborate on this, uh, this idea of friendship in Anselm's thought? Mm -hmm. Yes, okay. So, so part of what makes it somewhat paradoxical is at the beginning of the Proslogion, he's he talks about retreating into his own mind. So it's a very introspective, meditative work. Um, so you might think of just Anselm alone. He talks about he's going into his prayer closet, you know, as he's doing this. So in that sense, it's just Anselm as an individual. Of course, what he ends up with is this very communal vision of heaven in first again, 24 and 25. So you think, hmm, how do those things relate to each other? And I think one of the things that's informing this is Anselm's view of friendship. And I think we've I mentioned earlier just how this has been of all the other ways that I've been enriched by engaging Anselm. This has been the most surprising and one of the most meaningful. And when I taught a, a week-long class on Anselm once, this is the one that resonated most with students. And that is Anselm's view of friendship. Because it really is um, pretty radically different from the modern West. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said that in the ancient world, uh, friendship was considered the highest form of love. Now that's really, that again, it's one of those things that's so different because in the modern West, um, romantic and sexual love is considered the highest expression of love. It's like, you love your friends, but you really love your spouse. <laughs> and of course, marriage in the Christian tradition is this very unique and unprecedented kind of love as well. But um, the outside of the modern West, friendship really was more elevated and Anselm has a spiritual view of friendship. He actually thinks, and I don't even know fully what to make of this, but he actually thinks that there's a way that two souls can be spiritually united. So in his letters to other monks, he's talking about being away from you. I mean, there are people who have speculated that Anselm was a homosexual because of the yearnings he expresses to other monks. I don't think he was. I think it's like David and Jonathan. People, people speculate that their relationship was like that. And I don't think that, I think all that shows is how impoverished we are that we have no category for a kind of like Sam and Frodo friendship and the Lord of the Rings kind of a relationship, this deep bond that's just platonic and friendship and, and yet truly intimate. Um, but it's, uh, it's sad that our culture tends to sexualize intimacy, but there's a kind of intimacy that is so deep. 
and passionate without being sexual at all. And I think Anselm deeply had that. And, and he talks about, I mean, it's to the point of like, if you know the, the idea of perichoresis, which is the idea of interpenetration of the persons of the Godhead, he uses language like that for the souls of these monks. You know, that's the intensity of the love. Now, I don't want to, again, none of this is in the spirit of placing Anselm above criticism because Anselm is not Holy Scripture. So there's practices that Anselm gets into that as an evangelical Protestant, I wouldn't agree with, uh, such as praying to the saints. And you see some of that language in his prayers to some of the saints. Um, nonetheless, again, in the spirit of what can we learn, I think there's a lot we can learn from Anselm. And I think just the intensity of friendship is something really worth considering. I think one of the biggest blind spots of our culture is loneliness and the sense of, you know, with all our busyness, with our transience, how much we move around. In human history, most people don't move that much. You know, you get your father's job on the farm <laughs> and you live in your little village and you know the same people your whole life. That's most human life. And uh, in our culture, we move a lot. We're distracted by our phones all the time. We're busy and we don't have a high view of friendship. And so I think especially for men, um, but for everyone, there's a, a lot of loneliness that we don't even know that we're not even consciously thinking, oh, I'm lonely right now, but it really is a deep loneliness. So one of the benefits from Anselm, I think, is just to really reflect upon that and say, um, what, what would be the Christian view on that? And how, how, how can we cultivate these deep, healthy friendships uh, that we see throughout church history and that Anselm certainly um, himself had and also wrote about in his, the and, and, and it, were so significant to him that they um, informed kind of the climactic moment of this wonderful meditation upon God. So that's, that's a takeaway of something that's really worth reflecting upon, I think, today. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> um, that's, yeah, that's amazing. I don't know, Jens, if you have any more questions or any, any other thoughts about, about either the questions we've asked and the conversation we've had today or, or the book in general that, that we didn't hit on. Um, I, I don't know. I don't think, yeah, I don't think any, Gavin, if you have any you? thoughts or, or any sort of, con yeah, no, I, I feel, I feel like we were able to cover a lot. And I, I gotta say, just if, if any of the um, points that we touched on today interest you, like read, read this book, read the proslogion and read this book as well. Um, it's it is theological and technical and exegetical and yet engaging the whole way through as well so um extremely grateful to have gotten to read it i'm and we're both super grateful to catholic university of america press for sending us um, um copies and the copy that i read uh, i did not mark up on the inside or, or outside that for that matter. Um, so we are going to run a giveaway on social media um, starting today, the day this, the Tuesday that this episode releases. And let's say you have a week to enter. We'll have social media posts explaining the rules and, and uh, we'll, we'll ship off, we'll ship off this copy to one uh, lucky winner who can then get to multiply the joy of <laughs> getting to dive into the proslogion a little bit. <laughs> um, and yeah. So other than that, I think, um, I think that, that about wraps it up. Uh, like I was, I was, I think I was about to say, unless Gavin, you have any concluding thoughts or, or anything that you'd like to, to leave us with that we didn't get to. 
just to say thanks. I really enjoyed talking with you guys. It's always fun to talk about Anselm. Mm. And uh, just to apologize for to people for the cost of the book. If anyone's interested in buying it, it's a little on the pricier side. I don't make any money off of that, so in case people know. Um, but uh, yeah, if people are interested in buying it, uh, I hope they'll find it uh, of interest. And also, uh, if people are interested in Anselm, again, uh, don't be too intimidated to just dive in. I think you'll find it a little easier than you might expect. And especially those later chapters in the Proslogion, I think people will find them really interesting and really edifying to read. Hmm. Well, I do That's have great. one final question. Um, we we ask yeah. every everybody we interview. Uh, Lucas and I are both really into books. I mean, we read your book. We we read a lot of books, so we like to ask. Uh, so, Gavin, what are you reading? What's a book you're reading right now that that you'd like to share? All right, I'll give two answers. One is I've my, I've gotten my kids into Calvin and Hobbes, <laughs> and I this is my favorite comic book growing up, and I it's so fun that my kids are now into it. So I've been reading that with them at bedtime, which has been a lot of fun. On the more serious side, I've been reading <laughs> Martin Chemnitz's uh, response to the Council of Trent. He was a Lutheran theologian, and so I've been on my YouTube channel doing a lot in terms of Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant issues. And so he's been a guide for me in working some of, through some of those issues. So that's kind of been just over the this week, been diving into that a bit. Very nice. You're a big fan nice. of Calvin and Hobbes as well. So that's that's a good shout out. But yeah so th thank you again gavin for for joining us uh, we really appreciated having you and 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 thank you listeners for checking out this episode and friday's episode uh if you'd like to connect with us you can find us on twitter and instagram at doxology podcast uh, you can always send us your feedback questions episode ideas uh, at the end of the day we'd love to hear from you um, and we'd love to know what you thought about this let us know but until next time peace peace